Greetings and thanks for tuning in. I'm Abby Ellsworth, a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. Today on National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, I am talking with Chief Doug Shoemaker, who is more than 30 years in law enforcement and is the chief with the Grand Junction, Colorado Police Department. Chief, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. You started out in Columbia, Missouri as a police service officer with the University of Missouri Columbia Police Department. And then you served for nearly three decades with the department in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the state capital. Correct. You have a master's in criminal justice, a PhD in organizational leadership. You're an adjunct professor. <laughs> you are very busy. I guess technically you be you would be Dr. Chief Shoemaker. <laughs> I, guess, I guess so. I don't get that much, though. <laughs> and then you've served for more than a decade in prominent roles with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Correct. And the role to which you were just elected you are the fifth vice president of the organization, or you're one of five vice presidents? I am the fifth vice president, which means that every year at the annual conference for the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the vice presidents go up through the chairs. In October of 2022, I'll become the fourth vice president, and then I'll become the third the year after, all the way to the presidency and uh, October of 2026, when I'll assume that role. Oh, that's great. It certainly is an honor to have been elected. I feel really good about that. And I feel very committed to policing and, and, and really the opportunities, I think, that present themselves. Well, I'd love to start out sort of on the local level and then move into your vision nationally and your vision for the future. So in preparing to interview you, I noticed some um, stories about things going on in Colorado. I just did an interview with a captain in Washington state about new, very restrictive police reform laws and the impact they're having on officers' ability to do their job. I, in your state, I know that you had a challenge with a Senate bill that did not pass, but if you could talk about why it was important that it did not pass, what the impact of that would have been. The challenge, I think, with the Senate bill that was introduced earlier this year was one that was basically considered or termed as a GLD population bill. However, the restrictions within that bill were extremely limiting to law enforcement uh, officers and agencies in that we were prohibited from arresting for fourth, fifth, and sixth degree felony arrests that were not uh, VRA or Victims' Rights Act crimes. So as an example, <clears throat> a burglary to a business where there's property destruction or theft under a certain amount of money would no longer, had the bill passed, uh, allowed us to make a, a physical arrest on a suspect or suspects. We would have only been able to issue a summons for that violation and we would have actually, by statutory language, been prohibited to make an arrest. In other words, it's not an option, it's, a, it's, a, it's an order or a command not to make an arrest. Uh, this is problematic for us, and not only within our community, but certainly throughout the state in that the rights of business owners and, and, and the rights of, of, of just our citizens to be able to conduct business and to, to not be subject to criminal violations like that is really challenging and, and something we weren't interested in. So collectively, as the 
Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police, along with some other business owners and, and concerned community members, not only locally, but across the state, really fought to defeat that legislation. And fortunately, we're able to get that put to a halt and, and really kill that bill. So we were, we were thrilled with that outcome, not because it felt good to win, just because it, it felt like we were truly looking out for victims' rights in the end. And, and that's something that I think sometimes with these legislative actions gets very much overlooked. The victims of crimes have rights too, and people have the right to to go about their business, you know, without fear of, of harm. Uh, that was good. Uh, the year before, obviously, we had Senate Bill 217, which was a very restrictive and at the time considered sweeping legislative action to reform policing in the state of Colorado. And part of that, as you are aware, dealt with qualified immunity. Colorado State then Qualified immunity has been eliminated. Yeah, so the qualified immunity applies to situations where if an officer is believed to have violated someone's civil rights, then they are now personally liable for up to $25,000 of of a lawsuit directed specifically at them personally. The issue of of qualified immunity is something that I think even on a national level has been discussed quite frequently. So we've had to combat that locally and across the state with, with trying to figure out how to better protect those who protect and serve. And uh, I don't think people really understand what, truly what qualified immunity is, first and foremost. But then secondarily, we took the extra steps to bring on an attorney that's specific to public safety to really interpret some of these new laws because the, the bill that was passed, Senate Bill 217, was passed within a week. It was a very quickly passed bill with so many issues or challenges and, and things that were vague that interpreting the bill appropriately uh, was really important because if you didn't do it appropriately, then we're, we're opening ourselves up to civil liability for our individual officers. And when you say most people don't understand what qualified immunity is, is there a way to explain it? <laughs> in, a, in a short podcast. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, it, it can be something so simple as, as somebody feels as if they're, if they're stopped on a DUI stop and and there was a search that extended further as a result of that stop than beyond what they feel like the scope of that search should have been for evidence or whatever else, then technically they're opening that officer up to civil liability under that. It doesn't have to be something that one would see in the headlines about, you know, police use of force or response to resistance or anything like that. It can be something much simpler than that. And so I think there's a there's a really a misinterpretation of what that truly is. And I, I know that the Supreme Court recently had a few decisions talking about it's 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 really nearly impossible to impose restrictions on police officers to expect them to make split-second decisions based upon a series of things that just aren't realistic for a, a normal person to, to even be able to, to do reasonably. So, you know, we'll see where this goes, but I know that we're just trying to work through it and, and just make sure that we, we empower our officers to have the proper training to go out and do the job in the right way. I don't know the extent of Senate Bill 217, but it sounds very similar to what just happened in Washington State. My understanding is there was also something about use of force in that Senate bill? Yeah, there were a lot of different pieces of it, and that was the problem. It was it was multifaceted. That it, that it tried to cover like a, a blanket covering so many different things, but the approach was one that was not at all well thought out, nor was, was it really consulted with people that are doing the job. And that was that was the challenge. And that created a problem, certainly in Colorado, because the perception at the time was that we are the most restrictive on our law enforcement personnel or our policing personnel more properly. And that 
it's hard to recruit and to bring people into the state to say, come be a, a police officer in, in Colorado when there's this feeling that perhaps the state of Colorado doesn't appreciate its police officers in the first place. Right. You know, that, that's, that's a challenge. And, and the reason I'm talking about this so much is it seems to be playing out in many markets in one way or another. And it seems like a lot of what people are trying to do is more punitive than productive. I think that's an accurate assessment. In Illinois, I know that there was a 762-page police reform bill that was passed earlier this year that had a lot of those same elements and took them even further in a lot of different ways. That's really challenging for officers in Illinois, which has led to some some issues there. I know in Massachusetts, New York, the same thing, Washington, California. But then there are some states that, that are sort of the opposite in terms of how they approach the police reform. And, you know, I think the thing is, when we talk about police reform, I think most of us are all about it. Policing as a profession is constantly reinventing itself anyway. So when we look at new patterns or new methodologies or new best practices, I think we're all trying to, to get to that level anyway. And, and I think the, the biggest challenge is when we, instead of addressing things like adequate funding for training, incentives to bring people on as police officers, you know, ensuring the psychological health of officers through wellness and appropriate programs because the trauma that we see is it absolutely impacts us not only as police professionals but as human beings. So those are the types of things that probably should be better addressed and, and I, I think we'll get there. It just seems sometimes that process goes different routes before it maybe finally gets to where it needs to be. Right. It seems that people are trying to change law enforcement but law enforcement is not invited to the table. Yeah, that happens um, more often than not, I think. Right. It's accurate to say that there are no national training standards, right? Every state does things differently. Yeah, you know, we live in a, in a country where we have, I don't know, 18,000 police departments across the country or something like that. Every state is different, um, every department is different, and there are no national ways of, of, of doing things that, that run from agency to agency. And that's because we're set up in states. We don't have a national police force like some countries. And so because of that, it's much more of a, of a challenge to try and go one direction because that direction might not suit officers in Louisiana versus Alaska versus Ohio versus California. They're all, they're all different. And so that's not, that's not even on the table. And so the expectation that a national standard can be realized is probably something that may not happen. However, the opportunity to throw forth best practices through training opportunities on a national level, I think absolutely exists. Okay. We move forward, I think that's where we have some real opportunities to go, hey, this, this could be a great way and let's see who can be some early adopters and then we spread the word and, and we go forward with it. And when you talk about ethics in law enforcement, ethics means what? Well, I mean, it's very broad what it means, but, I, you know, the old traditional way of thing of, of doing the right thing when nobody's looking, that kind of thing. It's just understanding the weight of the responsibility of the badge that you wear. It's the understanding that you are expected to always keep in mind the good of the public and the right thing to do. The right way is always the right way. And if you lose the integrity piece, then you've lost, in my opinion, the right to wear the badge. It's just that simple. In certain areas, law enforcement, like in Seattle, Portland, 
New York, LA, people are very much anti-police. The negative narrative really is wearing police down. In your market, are you, do you enjoy a level of support from your community? Because I read in one of the other articles that assaults on police officers are up something like 300% in your market. Yeah. So when we're, when we're talking about our local market, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a multifaceted answer. So with regard to the assaults, I really truly contribute that to when COVID began a year and a half, 18, 19 months ago, 20 months ago now, I think attitudes and frustration really rose in the community, not only locally, but across the country. People were just became angry after a while and we couldn't take people to jail. And so that was that was on a case by case basis in terms of within the state, some jails remained completely open with no restricted standards for arrest. Other areas, including our own, became extremely restrictive on who we could or could not take to jail. And soon people found out and they became very, I guess the word would be almost bravado in their, you're not gonna take me to jail attitude anyway. And with that came this this feeling of empowerment, which led to more violations and certainly an openly ag- aggressive attitude towards the officers that would try and take action in the first place. So our assaults on our on our staff went up significantly uh, during that time. Now, that doesn't lead to the greater community's feeling or support about our, our police department in particular, because overall, I think we enjoy a tremendous amount of, of support from our community. In April of 2019, as a matter of fact, attacks increase was put before the voters in the city of Grand Junction to add a significant amount of money to both to the police department and the fire department to add additional personnel to build out some fire stations to give us some additional equipment uh, items that, that would help us vehicles training etc and that passed and so that's you know if your police department isn't appreciated by the community that bill's not going to pass so that and really with when we go out amongst our community and interact with them routinely, uh, the praise greatly outweighs the negative. And even during the turmoil and the challenges that the tragedy of George Floyd brought to us, I think we found some opportunities to engage. And I think our community responded extremely well to those. And I think we've enjoyed a level of respect and a feeling of that we're approachable with our community that I think we still enjoy today. And I, and I, I think we're doing, knock on wood, pretty well. And so I, I think that's why our officers like working here because they feel like their community supports them. And certainly our city council and our city manager supports us. And so that's, that, that does sometimes make all the difference. See, when you talk about the impact of George Floyd's murder, I noticed in your work with Jefferson City that you were incident commander for the Journey for Justice March held in the wake of the Ferguson protests in 2014. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and compare and contrast to where we are now. Did it prepare you for what happened with the civil unrest for George Floyd or was what happened with George Floyd just a completely other thing? The journey for justice, which was, as you mentioned, the march from Ferguson to Jefferson City back in December of 2014. I was the incident commander for that. But as I look back on that, I think there were several things leading up to that prior to the incident in Ferguson that I I think we 
we'd been working on and maybe I had a personal stake in as well with just trust building with the community. And that goes back several years back in Jeff City when the National Socialist Movement showed up to the state capitol to protest. And we worked with uh, many of our faith-based community leaders and other folks to have an alternative rally, what we called a unity rally in another park far away from the demonstration that the NSM was, was hosting. And the NSM, the National Socialist Movement, is a neo-Nazi organization. Yep. I think we'd been building on the importance of community trust for a long time and having conversations and just establishing a rapport with community groups and other concerned folks that really played in very well to the journey for justice. And, and when that came to us, we knew that it would all eyes would be on us because of what happened in Ferguson. When you would watch the news in Ferguson, you would see buildings being burned and and, and Molotovs and rocks being thrown and just absolute chaos. And then, so that's what our community figured would happen in, in Jeff City as well, because that's what they see. So, you know, our goal was to really take it from a different approach and to try and ease some fears. And I, and I think those previous relationships that have been built up with our local NAACP president and other uh, community members helped kind of set a tone as the journey began into the city and even the night before <clears throat> the NAACP president had contacted me and I had dinner with the protesters and, and my goal was just to make sure they knew that, look, we're, we're here and we're here to protect their rights to peacefully protest. And, and we expect in return that, you know, you peacefully protest. We will be there to make sure that you can do so safely. I think that resonated well with those who wished to protest. And, and the next day the, the march happened and we had no incidents at all along the way. As a matter of fact, we had a lot of compliments thrown the way of our officers from those in the march to say, thanks for doing what you do. But of course, you don't see that on the national news because it's not an attractive sort of thing that, that causes controversy and Increasing, so the event really went without, went with very little media attention because it wasn't, it wasn't what happened in, in Ferguson to the east of us. So for me, that I think that was a victory, but it also spoke to the value of relationships. So fast forward to George Floyd and the murder there in Minneapolis. Did those things play a part in how we approached it locally? Absolutely. I think bridge building and talking to people and getting to know you know, their expectations, their experiences and validating those by listening and just having conversations about things that might sometimes be uncomfortable because they're different. But I think once you sit down at the table and really start to listen, so much that can be gained out of that. And so when the George Floyd murder happened, I sent out what I sent out on social media via Twitter, which was admittedly an uncomfortable tweet to send out because it was probably calling out some uh, fellow law enforcement policing leaders to say, just do better. What did your tweet say? Well, there were several parts to it. Like I think seven or eight points to it, but I have a tremendous amount of respect and I love and will defend the officers that I'm fortunate enough to serve with now and those that I've served with before because I'm passionate about what they do and I think they have the right heart for the job and, and they do so many great things. But there are officers and we've seen it time and time again in other parts of the country or maybe of the world that have absolutely abused their authority and that make us all look bad. And those are the people that I don't want in the profession. It's just that simple. Nobody in any profession wants somebody that's in the same profession as they are to make them look bad because they misuse their authority to do whatever it happens to be. And the same goes for policing. It's just, it's illogical to think otherwise. So when I put that out, I, I, it, that resonated with our local football coach who has just been hired 
He happened to be the first African-American coach that we've ever had here at Colorado Mesa University. And within three days from my tweet, we're having coffee and just having conversations about where he's from. It was a lot of listening and then really what his thoughts were and my thoughts were and how that sort of got together. And that sparked a, a relationship that to this day thrives. And it was very organic, which was nice and not some staged event or, you know, a, a town hall or, or something like that, which are great. But it just happened so naturally that I think that's why the relationship built since that point been built as well as it has. So it, when we took all the things, all the lessons learned from the journey for justice and the time before with the NSM march and everything that led up to it, I just think that the ability and the desire, the true desire to listen and just to talk about things and to see how we're we're more alike than we are different. And then ideally how we can work together to solve those community-based problems has been just a huge benefit for us. You know, you talk about listening. It is a, a mutual responsibility. The police need to listen to the community, but the community also need to listen to the police. One of the things that I find frustrating is that people don't seem to want to know. They just want to attack. They just want to change. They don't want to understand what it means to be a police officer. Yeah, that's accurate. It's a difficult profession. And the, the demands on police have increased you know, exponentially over the years and over the decades from simply going out and, and enforcing the laws, I guess is the easiest way to say it, to becoming much more than that in terms of social work expectations, all the different aspects that come with that to mental health professionals, to clinicians, to, uh, it just, it runs the gamut. And I think everybody knows that. And, you know, who do you call when you don't know what to do? You call 911. And it's in our laps to try and figure this puzzle out as to where this person should go. Is it, is it really a truly a criminal offense, which many times it's not, or is it a, some sort of social issue? Uh, is it a mental health crisis? Is it an alcohol or drug crisis that's not necessarily good for a criminal response to it or going to jail? Because that we all know that's not always the answer. You just don't throw everybody in jail. The expectations and the weight of that is very heavy, and some people don't want to understand that. And I will say, given COVID, given the challenges in legislation, and given the election year. Everybody has a side that they want to pick, and it seems like that a lot of folks, if you're not on their side, then you therefore must be against them. It's become way too political, and policing isn't political. It's not, that's not what it's supposed to be. Our job is to protect the innocent from harm and protect our community from the vulnerable, more specifically from harm. That's what our job is. When you mentioned social work and mental health professionals, this is another topic that people are talking about. They, they don't want police showing up to a person in crisis. They don't want them showing up in uniform or with a gun. But, you know, when the call comes out, it's a 911 call, police come. I know that you do in your market and in other markets have a mental health professional that does go out with your officers. If you want to just touch on that and then we'll move into some of the more national issues. But locally, you do have a program with mental health professionals. We do. We have what's called a co-responder program. And um, to back it up even further is, is we also train our officers in what's called crisis intervention training to help officers better assess potential signs of uh, somebody that might be experiencing a mental health crisis when they go on the calls that, they, that they're assigned to. So I think that's really helpful with the officers and how they respond to those kinds of things in the first place. So that, that training is essential to establishing who we are and, and how we respond to things. But beyond that, 
the co-responder program, which is now in its third year of existence, has been extremely effective. And we have an officer that is teamed up with, with a clinician and they ride in a uh, unmarked white van. It doesn't look like a police car at all. And they respond to these calls and the officer and the clinician go to every single call. The officer's there to really sort of assess a lot of the safety pieces of it. There may be some criminal element to it, but we're seeing more often than not that the clinician does the majority of that work in conjunction with the officer to try and get people the help they need to whatever that happens to look like. And whether that's, you know, uh, working through the VA to get some additional counseling or perhaps the medication issue, perhaps it's a detox issue. It runs a myriad of things, but that program has been extremely effective. And in the first two years of the program alone, the co-responder team, just the co-responder team took over 5,000 calls for service. And that's, again, just those those, those pairs of people that are working together. That's not counting all the other calls for service we've responded to from all of our officers that might perhaps be a mental health crisis. So it's it's been very effective for us. The community's responded very well. We've had great success with it, and the goal is to continue that moving forward, certainly, if not actually expand it. Right. Well, the need is great. The, the money has to be there to train the mental health professionals, but you know, law enforcement is continually accused of not doing this when in fact you are. Yeah, that's accurate. And really the need to continue to get more mental health professionals in the field because there are a distinct lack of them, particularly here in Western Colorado, just trying to get people that will work for you know, local hospitals like Springs, which is who we contract with for our mental health clinicians. It's very, very difficult. So I'm hoping as we move forward, that there are some creative solutions to ensuring we have enough people that want to do that part of the job so we can continue the program. Right. I did want to touch on your doctorate and dissertation. What is interesting to me is your commitment to law enforcement, but also it's important to me that people know your commitment sort of outside maybe the parameters of your job, in particular working with youth and to understand underlying issues, to give back to the community in an even different way, I call it preventive. Can you tell me about the doctorate, the dissertation, and the goals, what you studied, what you found? The work began actually long before the doctorate, in particular my work back in Jefferson City with Boys and Girls Club and United Way. But Boys and Girls Club has always, I guess for quite some time now, been sort of my passion. I like what it represents. I like that it gives kids a chance and it gives kids opportunities to just be themselves and to have a safe space and to to get that additional mentoring or meals or whatever it happens to be that maybe they're not getting elsewhere. So I appreciate very much what that organization is all about. So my work with Boys and Girls Club began quite some time ago and which led into you know, wondering about how these kids sometimes end up in the juvenile justice system. What happened along the way that would turn these kids to committing crimes or what appeared to be crimes that eventually were referred to the juvenile justice system, which ultimately led to me working with a group of people to start doing some research on, okay, what are our numbers in terms of particularly our minority youth or our um, African-American youth and why are they going into the system at a higher rate than everybody else based on, on our population? So that began a three-year study, a very in-depth study on these numbers to really figure out what that looked like, which then became obviously the idea for the, the research behind the dissertation. So the next level of that was 
okay, we now know the numbers as to a number of kids that are going in the juvie system, but the why became the issue. In other words, what's motivating these kids to commit acts in the first place that would get them in the situation? So you and I, for example, are at school, and, and I push you, you push me. Is that technically an assault? I suppose so. And if the school district is very strict on those types of things, then sometimes that school district may take action to say, automatic suspension, you're out for a week on that. Is that necessary? Probably not. Are there some things that are? Absolutely. But what we, what we forget sometimes is that when those kids are out of school for a week, they're typically not home studying, trying to quickly make up the work that they're missing that week. Many times they're already behind in a lot of the STEM classes anyway. And so that's, that creates an even bigger challenge. And soon this cycle repeats itself and you lose the kid. And they go into the juvenile justice system, which we all know that if they continually go in there, they're going to end up in the adult system down the road when they become of age. And then we, we lose a member of society. And that's just to me not acceptable. So we did the research to figure out the why and found that in many cases it was the parent or guardian referral that sent the child to the juvenile justice system in the first place. And then that led to a further dig in to determine what are the causing factors of that. And a lot of times it was because of the lack of a mentor, a missing parental figure, socioeconomic issue, a health issue, a school issue, a multitude of things. They're hanging around the wrong crowd, which led us to look at a program in Philadelphia, a diversion model that was set up, that was set up in Philadelphia by a Philadelphia PD major that we really implemented or began to implement locally within our own city. And so we wrote a grant, ultimately got that grant, which was to fund several positions that would be based in the Boys and Girls Club to start this diversion program to try and keep these kids out of the system as much as possible by providing them a mentor, by providing them alternative ways to go about doing what they needed to do seeing what the root causes were and then, then addressing those causes. And so that became the research and that became what we did. And ultimately we accomplished that. And right before I left, before I got this job, March or April of 2018, we got the grant. And so when I left Jeff City, I will tell you, I felt this tremendous level of guilt for a lot of reasons, I guess. But one of those major reasons was this program, which was something that very close to me personally, I was walking away from. But I, I feel like that was something that I was passionate about, something that I would certainly replicate if the opportunity presented itself as, as time goes on. But it was beyond the scope of traditional, we'll call it traditional policing roles. It was worthwhile. And for your learnings from that, would it impact you know, how you train or influence your officers to interact with youth? Absolutely. We created a system... Because we had to have buy-in, because many times the officers would be the ones that would be the first interaction with the kid, and to do an assessment to see if this child really needs to go to juvie or if this is a possible diversion. That was essential. That was absolutely a key component to this whole thing, to really do an assessment as to you know, what, what the child has done in the past, what's the real violation, what are the opportunities for diversion, where would we best put our resources to try and fix the problem that may not at all be within the criminal justice system, ideally not in the criminal justice system. Well, I also think it helps youth if they have an experience with law enforcement that is positive because so often the view of police is passed down from parents or from those experiences as youth and that creates an adult that hates law enforcement. So. And, the, and those are real. I mean, people that, for example, here at 
Colorado Mesa, we have kids from all over the country and some areas that are maybe more challenging, but then, then they come here and their, their experiences with police maybe aren't the best. Listening and understanding that experience and acknowledging that, okay, I get it, but we're different and let me, let me show you how. Yeah. And really, I think that makes a huge, and so in the two years that we've really, two and a half years, even before you know George Floyd, I guess, started, we've been trying to break down those barriers. But even just before that, nearly two years now, with specifically with the football team, you know, I'm now on a level where we follow each other on Twitter and uh, exchange congratulations and other types of things on social media where before that wasn't happening. So the beauty of this whole thing is this, is that there are so many opportunities for us right now to engage and to really figure out how we can best police our communities. And the more we do so by listening and interacting and building trust and rapport with the people that we serve, what a better way to have a career that at the end, down the road, you can go, I think I made a difference. Those are success stories I think we're looking for. And, and I think it's ripe for opportunity right now. I do want to talk about your role with the IACP in terms of your vision for law enforcement, why you are so committed. People will say to me, policing needs to change. And I don't know how to respond to that because part of me says, well, policing is changing. How do you respond to that? And is that the right question? Is that the question you get asked? I don't know that I get asked that question necessarily, but I, I think it's a safe assumption to say that the feeling is that policing needs to change. The problem is there's a lack of really understanding what the problem statement is and then the why behind it. It's easy to point at a profession and say it's all their fault and we've just got to change it all together as a blanket statement when it's not necessarily accurate. Are there, are there some challenges I think we have that we need to work on? Sure. But I, I kind of take it back to the communities as well in that there are so many issues, socioeconomic issues within our communities that uh, might have inequities or other challenges that really need to be worked on just as much. So that's, I, th I think it's, it's got to be a multifaceted approach in terms of police reform, if you want to call it that. Again, we're constantly evolving anyway, but ultimately if we don't evolve in the way that our community expects us to police, and if that means changes in how we do what we do, well then so be it. That's fine. But those that want to become better police agencies are already working to those ends to establish new best practices and best ways of doing the job that we do. The challenge is balancing all of the community expectations that police have to respond to in the first place and then really narrowing down what that looks like in terms of realistic expectations and outcomes. Do you really want police responding to different types of calls that may or may not be criminal in nature in the first place? Uh, what's the point? And uh, does that insert us into a situation where maybe we shouldn't be in the first place? Or are we so used to and accustomed to how quickly things can turn from one thing, a situation can come out as this, yet it evolves into something completely different? You know, there's the discussion of traffic stops or domestic violence situations and, and family-based issues that people say the police shouldn't take part in which I think is, is, is naive at best, because as we all know, those in the profession, certainly it's, those situations are, are typically where officers can be hurt or people will do something to make an aggressive movement or shoot at or try and harm an officer. In a domestic violence case, for example, um, a clinician that comes for a, a spouse that maybe has abused 
their spouse or, or some other act and to try and assume that they can de-escalate that, it's not always going to work and many times won't. And some states even have mandatory arrests for some of those types of things. So the bottom line is I think that the expectations for communities for us to become better is, is an understood one. I, I, but I think we're hopefully always doing that and we're having conversations with our communities to what they expect or what they want out of police. And, and as we've seen time and time again, people still want police in their neighborhoods. They just want better policing in their, in their neighborhoods. And so the training element in particular is just so critical to this. And when we see cuts to budgets, police budgets, we see cuts in personnel, we see cuts in training, and there's no way that agency is ever gonna improve. It's impossible. If you don't have the appropriate training that may be very different than what you're doing, maybe they're just meeting minimum standards and then you cut the training down further, then they're never going to get any better. It's just that that's just the nature of it. You know, traffic stops, as you mentioned, is one of the seems to be one of the hot topics. And the New York Times just did a very long article about how police target persons of color. And then they say that police unnecessarily create a tension in a traffic stop that leads them to use force. Yeah, you know, that's, it's, it's, that's a complex answer. I've not read the article you're referring to. So I guess I can just look at it in a general way to say that, look, you know, it, it behooves police agencies and communities to come together and talk about expectations. And that's the challenge I think we're all facing right now is to really, who's coming to the table to talk about it. Uh, it's easy to throw stones and it's easy to accuse and point fingers at the opposite quote unquote team. But the real gains are going to be found when people... I think like we have here, just come together and go, all right, what's this look like moving forward? And there are certainly things on on our end that we need to do better. And I think the community also has to have, to have some maybe more realistic expectations and, and play a part in it. Come out and experience what we do and, and understand the job as it truly is. And, and every time that we host some sort of community type event, whether it's a Citizens Police Academy or an internship or whatever it happens to be, it's amazing to hear the responses of people that said, I had no idea that that's how it really was because it's not how I see it on TV. Right. And, and we are a, a society that so very quickly believes everything we see on Twitter without hesitation, without vetting it, without anything, because it's an, we have an emotional reaction to it as opposed to a logical reaction to it. Then that's, we're already working from behind. But that's just the society in which we police now, and that's, it really is, is challenging. Right. When you say there are things law enforcement needs to do better, is there anything in particular? Well, one thing, I mean, is continuing outreach. Uh, and, and, and the other thing I said would be telling our story. We're, we've traditionally been terrible about telling our story. I think there are organic instances where we have a better opportunity to really show a different side of, of policing that are very much routine and, and consistent success stories. They're, they may be small things, but those community interaction pieces that go very well are part of the, the, the solution to telling what we're really about. Now, the flip side of that, and the thing that people have to understand, too, is that we also have to be very transparent about when we do something wrong. And if something bad happens, then own it and seek to do better. Those things just go hand in hand. The last thing we should do in any profession, and in policing in particular, is try and sugarcoat things to just sort of say, but that's only a few people and we're all really good and here's you know a pretty little video and whatever else. And that's just not how it works. 
But I think realistically, we do talk to our community and connect with our community by talking about some of the things that routinely we do very well because they want to see that. They want to see those, those positive interaction moments, those positive programs, whatever it happens to be. Well, and I'll add just another layer to that, which is I find that people are unwilling to accept and understand that occasionally force is needed and occasionally deadly use of force is needed. No one wants to believe that's the case. This is a violent job at times. It just, by the nature of it, we deal with people that are very, very violent. The people that we take to jail, that go to prison, can be, or have many times already been very violent with somebody else, whether it's been a spouse or some member of the public. And that violence has to be quelled. And sometimes that takes force to take somebody into custody. And it's never pretty. That's the nature of the business. It is never pretty and it never will be. Officers don't come to work with the intention of today I'm going to use force on somebody and I'm looking forward to it. It's really sad that people would associate that with with police, but yet I understand it because if that's that's what national media would, would have you think or what you know unvetted posts on Twitter or whatever social media channel you happen to follow along with would tell you. There is a, a definitive psychological strain on our officers in the things that they see and that most of the public never, ever, ever has to deal with. And some people say, well, you signed up for the job. Well, you know what? There's other things we can do too. Police officers are some of the most intelligent, quick thinking, thoughtful individuals that I've ever had the, the pleasure of working with. And so this takes a this takes a psychological toll on them too. And likewise, they're spouses, their boyfriends, their girlfriends, their family members worry about them because they're getting hit or spit on or beat up or shot at or stabbed or whatever the case may be. And that that's difficult to process not only physically, but also psychologically. And so we have to really watch for the mental wellness of our officers out there too. And in the vast majority of situations by far, most police contacts go exactly as they're supposed to go. We all know that. And are there mistakes made sometimes? Yes. Are they tragic? Yes. Um, are there officers that are currently employed that shouldn't be cops and probably should be in jail? Yeah. So we got to figure out how to get rid of those. But there are also quite a few officers that are out there really wanting to try and make a difference in their community because they love who they serve. Right. You know, you have a 30-year commitment to law enforcement and you are now really stepping forward for law enforcement with your work with IACP. What is What motivates you What's your goal? What's your hope? What's your vision for the future? Yeah, it's been over 30 years now and, and looking down the road with IACP, I'll come close to 40 years, I would guess, in this professional and all is said and done. And I think that rises out of just, I think, a love of the profession. I've had the good fortune to meet so many great people in policing, not only locally and in agencies that I've served, but also across the country that want to do so much more to make their communities better within their capacity to do so as a police officer. And that to me is extremely motivating. And it's the, it's the stories that I hear or the things that I see that you know, our officers do that make me want to work harder to tell that story and to show or maybe showcase the good things and to talk about the realities of, of things that we just don't see on the five o'clock news or the headline across whatever you know media websites you happen to follow. I'm sometimes told I would never want your job. You know, it's it is difficult. Sure, is it stressful? Absolutely. But it's giving back in a way that I don't think I could do in another profession. 
What made you decide to become a police officer? When I was younger, I started working for the University of Missouri Columbia Police Department, as you mentioned, and I was doing that as I was, as I was going to school full time at MU. I got to know the officers there at MUPD. They were very, very helpful, kind people that I think wanted to just make sure people were safe. Uh, it's, it's a simple thing, but they took it very seriously. Uh, they enjoyed what they did. And I loved the idea of being able to work with people with a job that where I'm not sitting behind a desk all the time, which is sort of ironic because now I sit behind a desk. Um, but it's, you know, it was, it was good. And it was a first kind of taste of what it was like to see policing in a different way. And then that carried over to being fortunate enough to be hired by Jefferson City, Missouri, and having people that were just very community-minded was, again, inspiring to me. You really, truly can help people in ways that you can in other professions. And as I look back at my career, it's not been medals of like life-saving or a medal of honor or things like that that are great, but it's been the smaller pieces, I think, that resonate with me more. Like what? In particular, I remember my very first death notification, and it was a lady who had lost her daughter in a car crash, and it was my it was my first, and I and I distinctly remember my sergeant calling me and telling me I need you to go do this, and I distinctly remember telling him, no, I really don't want to do that, and <laughs> you're the only officer available. You've not done it before. You need to go do it. I'm sure you'll do you'll do fine. And at the time, our academy training was 120 hours of minimum training to become a peace officer, which clearly was not enough. And I, I, I also remember in that 120 hours of training, there was nothing about how to give a death notification. And so it was nerve wracking. And I remember pulling up to the residence. I remember the exact location. I remember the smell of the air. It's really strange what you remember, but I remember everything about it. And I remember my hands were shaking. And as I walked to the front door, to talk to somebody I'd never met to tell her that her daughter had been killed in a car crash and terrified that I was going to say the wrong thing, had no idea what I was going to do, and then just did it and sat with her for an hour until a friend could arrive. And, you know, she showed me pictures. We had a good conversation, but I was scared because I thought I'm going to do it wrong. I'm going to make it worse. And so that was probably one of the more terrifying things that I think I've ever done. And I recall about a month later, my chief of police at the time who hired me and, and who was always a mentor and a great person called me in and said, I, I have a letter for you. And, I, and it was from the lady who I had delivered the death notification to. And it was this really kind-hearted letter about my demeanor and what it meant to her. And to me, that was the moment. That was the, now I get it. That was the, this is the difference that we make. And it's not the medal, it's not the ceremony, it's not the stuff on TV, the car chases and things. It's, it's the ability to affect people on a level that seems to make it just a little better when they're having their absolute worst day. And to this day, even though that was back in, I think, 1993, it's still extremely emotional to me, I think, because of the impact of that, not only for her, but also what it meant to me as a as a, a newer police officer and the true weight of the role and the need to do it right. It's always stayed with me. So that's my why. Wow, that's amazing. I know that a lot of police officers I've heard are saying, I got to go back. I got to remember my why because it's hard right now. Well, it's a difficult time. And 
Um, I, I, you know, we're lucky again, and you talked about our community earlier, and our community routinely thanks us. I walk into, you know, a local bagel store or something, and uh, people will say, hey, thanks for your service. And, boy, that means a lot. I mean, it, it beats the opposite. And it's, it's always very humbling, and it's appreciated. And, and so I think that our officers know they're making a difference, that their community appreciates them. And as, as a, you know, part of command staff and the leader of the organization, it certainly falls upon me to remind them that they matter and that they're cared about. We want to make sure that they succeed and we'll give them all the tools to do that and that they're a part of our family. So finding that why is extremely important. And, and us maintaining that reiteration of, of why they're important and what they do makes a difference is, is just as important. We're so desensitized to the, the, the traumas and the horrors of of life uh, in our society these days and just the anger that takes place that we don't sometimes stop and understand the true impact that a little bit of kindness can give and whether that's us just being you know nice and polite on a call or whether that's seeing somebody on the street and just smiling and saying hello or whatever else happens to be is that as as pollyanna as that may seem the more kindness we show one another as a society i just i think we're going to get much better and as police, we're one small part of that. As much work as I do with law enforcement, it still takes courage for me to walk up to an officer and say thank you, because I feel like I'm bothering them, you know. <laughs> I can tell you on behalf of all of us, we love it. <laughs> and, and it can, you know, you never know what's going through that officer's head and what call they were just on or what they're doing. Yeah. But sometimes that little bit of encouragement or reinforcement can absolutely make or break that officer's day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see a lot of posts from police departments of chiefs swearing in their new recruits. And so as chief, how does it feel when you see new officers swearing in? I, I deal with them so many times before the formal piece. Uh, we do a, a badge pinning ceremony, which is more of a formal thing after they're hired and they finish field training and, and so on and so forth. But I, I deal with them so much before that time. And, and one thing that we do, I think that's really resonated with our recruits is I show up along with the deputy chiefs to all of our physical fitness testing processes. I meet every person that goes through and I shake their hand and get to meet them and ask them where they're from, their name and kind of why they're there today and what brought you. And then I wish them best luck. And then I stay through the PT test and we all sort of, you know, cheer them on and, and encourage them throughout the test. And while it might seem minor, I'm amazed at how many times when we get to the final stages of the interview for the officers that they remember that in particular and say, you were there and you took the time as the chief to come to the testing and it seemed like you were invested in us from the start. I think that really resonates with people because they feel like they're part of something. And I think that personal touch speaks to the agency culture that we have. I think that's attractive to people especially in this day and age. Well, I certainly appreciate you and I appreciate them. I appreciate all that you do. Thank you for being here today, Chief. Thank you for having me. It's been a great discussion. I've enjoyed it. It's nice to rehash some of the, particularly the why pieces. It's good to go over these things and I, I'm really looking forward to the future and I'm excited and thrilled about both the work with ICP and within my own agency that again, I'm lucky enough to lead. So thank you for, for all the work that you're doing to get the, get the word out. I'm trying, I'm trying to do that storytelling, that showcasing, as you say, of all the good work that you and your fellow officers do. That is the purpose of my podcast. I thank everyone for listening.